Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. It's the morning after the budget night before and Philip Hammond could be forgiven for getting a bit giddy at all of the positive coverage for his policies rather than his jokes. He held at the beginning of the end of austerity, blowing a multi-million pound windfall on tax cuts and extra spending. But what was hidden in the small print? Does it make an election more likely? And who will actually have more money in their pocket? Joining me to answer those questions and others posed by Times Red Box readers are a stellar panel of Times experts who almost look like they might have recovered from covering the budget uh, yesterday. Anne Ashworth is the Times Money and Property Editor. Oliver Wright is the Times Policy Editor. But we begin with the economics, and this is the Times Business Editor, Richard Fletcher. The Office for Budget Responsibility handed Philip Hammond a lifeline by reducing its borrowing forecasts over five years and marginally raising growth forecasts. But amid all the euphoria, little attention was paid to the fact the UK economy continues to lag its major competitors. So Richard, let's just talk about the numbers first of all. Exactly how much more money did Philip Hammond have to play with? So, so he had a, a, well, £68.5 billion over over five years. So he, he was given a huge amount of headroom by the OBR, of which he used 97% of it to, uh, uh, to, to fund, obviously, Theresa May's promise on the NHS funding uh, and also to uh, do various giveaways, in, including raising the um, personal allowances faster than had previously been promised. So this was a giveaway budget. Where does this money magically appear from? If people suddenly think, well, how did he start the week not having this money up his sleeve? And, you know, he's he suddenly found £68 billion. Where's that from? So the OBRs uh, basically has its forecast and they basically admitted that actually they've been getting it wrong for the last few years uh, and actually borrowing is going to be a lot less than, than they'd expected, which which obviously gave him a huge amount of headroom. These are forecasts, not actual numbers, so they may have to claim these back in a few years' time. And actually, if you look at the track record of the OBR, it's not brilliant. The borrowing forecasts are sort of... If you if you put them all since 2010 on a graph, it's just a, a sort of a series of sort of snakes just moving further and further 
cross to the right hand side, the, that that magical aim of eradicating the deficit just moves further into the distance. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the last budget we had these the major revisions to their productivity forecast. So they they they, they conceded that they'd been massively overestimating our ability to recover the productivity that we lost, uh, you know, in the, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So yeah, even by economists' high standards, the OBR, you know, you could argue its forecasting ability isn't great. But then obviously, you are looking at a crystal ball, and that's not easy. And so what is the state of the economy? The economy is, you know, we're not in recession. Obviously, there was a lot of talk after after the Brexit vote about project fear and back into recession. And the, but we we are basically in this period of of low growth. So we've got we've got very low growth, uh, less than two percent. We've got uh, very low levels of unemployment. So we've got very low inflation. Although we're starting to see a little bit of inflation come back, but not a huge amount. So we're in this kind of what I would call slightly boring period of of low growth, low inflation, low unemployment. And and what did you make of the sort of the economic, the big economic picture that Philip Hammond laid out in his budget? Well, I sat there thinking, are we resilient enough to be able to take any shocks that Brexit could deliver? I'm going to say that phrase, the unknown unknowns that could result when we exit in whatever state we exit from the EU. And he didn't give me that sense of reassurance that a good chancellor can give you even in fairly dire times. There was an argument, you could say, that, that having been having bagged all this extra money from uh, the magic money tree, just banking that and just saying, let's just get through the next six months, see what happens with Brexit. We might need this for some, like you say, some shocks. I wanted to hear the words war chest against times ahead, but then perhaps, you know, I'm a traditionalist in these matters. <laughs> what did you make of it, okay, Ollie? I'll pick up on Anne's point. I don't think Philip Hammond wanted to give us much reassurance. I mean, he wants a soft Brexit. He is fighting a bitter internal battle um, against those both in the Cabinet who want a slightly harder form of Brexit and more broadly against the Brexiteers on the back benches. I think this budget was framed in a way to scare people. Um, it was designed to say to them, well, you know, things might be all right, we might be able to spend this, but you know, you know all this money? So what you're saying is he made sure there was no slack giving the ardent Brexiteers no scope whatsoever, That's... that they would have to agree to what he and Mrs May present to them as a as a way of exiting the EU. I think that's his intention, whether he succeeds or not, is a completely different matter. <laughs> we'll come on to Brexit later, but Richard, in terms of our position in the sort of, in the world, fifth biggest economy, sixth biggest, you know, this, explain why we keep seem to be going up and down this league table of Well, there's economies. not much up in the league table. We're, we're, we're slipping down. So, so we, we are going a little bit faster than Italy, but not much faster than the rest of the G7. So we are at the bottom of the table. We are the sort of Huddersfield, if you like, of... Uh, <laughs> in terms of, of growth rather than the size of the economy. In terms of growth, yeah, absolutely, which obviously is important. So I, I, just to pick up on Anne's point, I did think what was quite interesting about this budget, it was, although uh, for the sort of Westminster folk, perhaps the change in language wasn't wasn't a surprise, you know, the if you'd followed May's comments about the end of austerity, this was a big shift in the budget in that, you know, this was a big change in borrowing strategy, the commitment to eliminate the deficit went out the window treasury idea of you know you've got to get the deficit down seems to have, have fallen away and yet the markets barely moved so sterling was basically flat on the day gilts have barely moved and so i do think that is quite interesting and, and maybe that you know as, as, as simon nixon our economist was saying to me earlier today the markets will only worry when you're in trouble 
But there was a big shift in the tone in terms of borrowing and, and the commitment uh, to austerity. And yet the markets just seem to shrug that off. And, and we were told in 2010 when the coalition was formed and we had to tackle the deficit and we had to set out a plan to eradicate it because we didn't want to be Greece. We couldn't cope with a massive crash. What do you think has changed? Is it just time that we haven't teetered on the edge like that? Well, I think it's partly that you know deficit as a percentage of GDP is now much lower. So we are in a much better position as part of GDP. But I, yesterday there was this change in tone and I think that was quite significant and I was quite surprised at how the markets just completely ignored that. Before we move on, a couple of questions from readers. Gordon Dow said, would we have had a stronger economy if Cameron hadn't held a referendum? Now, this is, this is like the opposite of a forecast. This is a sort of retrospective reimagining of the past. But what, what impact has the referendum, the outcome had? I mean, the answer to that is clearly yes, without doubt. You know, we've seen this huge growth uh, in the US economy, you know, sparked by Trump's stimulus to, you know, his changes to the tax regime and, and also his deregulation. And we've also seen stronger growth in Europe. And typically, you would have seen the UK economy uh, follow that and that we, we should have seen much higher growth over the last few years. And so clearly, the answer to that is yes. Is it right that I saw somewhere buried deep in one of the documents that come, comes out, the economy is 2.2% smaller? Yeah, I've seen that figure in recent weeks. There's been lots of research undertaken both by city economists and some of the think tanks that's come to a sort of similar level. Just finally, before we move on from the sort of economics of it, Lara Bolenghi, um, the Times writer commenting on the, one of our many budget stories online, she was saying it wasn't a budget, this is a prank. Money they didn't know they had appeared at the last minute so they could pretend spend it with a proviso that will be torn up if necessary. Will he at some point have to come back and, and revisit all of this? Well, it very much depends of whether the OBR have got their sums right. So, that you know, he's been hit in the past by budgets where the OBR forecasts have been, you know, more pessimistic than expected and he's had to have a tougher time. So, you know, this was a lucky chance to live you like this because this may well be, let's be honest, his last budget. One thing, a point I would make is that he has started to fall in this habit, of Gordon Brown habit of hiding stuff in the red book. So there were lots of big announcements. So help to buy, no mention in the speech, but there was actually quite a significant change to that in the red book. You know, his big signature move... The, you know, the tax on plastic, that actually won't come into force until April 2022, and he just forgot to mention that date during the speech. <laughs> uh, there's a tax on heated tobacco products. That's quite a significant change. Again, no mention in the speech, buried in the Red Book. You know, so I do think he is falling into that Gordon Brown habit, and yet we still got these mentions of these £10 million for church halls, you know, uh, planning for uh, public conveniences. I, I do think we should have a ban on chancellors mentioning any measure that has has an effect of less than 250 million on the economy they should just be banned they should be like an OBR because these rule. those small amounts of money are just there to make jokes so we had um he he spent 10 million pounds on something to do with fly tipping just to make a joke about how John McDonald fallen over some rubbish. In the past, George Osborne did it. He'd spent five million on something just to make a joke about Boris Johnson. You're absolutely right. And the speech was actually longer than his speech. It was over an hour, which and typically he's a bit shorter than that. And yet, so he he has room for all these terrible jokes, and they were really were terrible. Really uh, and yet, these really important <laughs> measures he just doesn't mention at all. And that and that really is a sort of you know that really is a return to the bad old days. So I think as well as having the OBR, we should have a sort of a regulator. I don't normally like regulators, but I'll make an exception on this occasion. We should have a <laughs> regulator of the speech that should say that's too small a measure, you've got to take you it out. You can't it. And presumably, Anne, the message that you would um, give to Philip Hammond when he's looking for, ahead to his OBR is that the, the value of his what's in his coffers can go up as well as down, which is uh, you know what money editors tell readers all the time. I, I like a prudent chancellor myself. I like a stingy kind of guy, really. 
you know, for preference. Because you preferred Philip Hammond Mark 1 rather than the one we had oh, this yeah. week. Oh, yeah, spreadsheet Phil, please, yes. <laughs> I don't want sunshiny, jokey Phil. I want spreadsheet Phil. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to hear jokey Philip Hammond ever again after his very <laughs> peculiar set of... Um, some of them, I wasn't sure if they were jokes or just statements of fact. But anyway, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about the politics of all of this. This is Oliver Wright. This was a budget, in many ways, as important for what it didn't say as for what it did. By turning on the spending caps and promising good times ahead, the implicit message to Tory MPs was, don't mess it up by voting down my Brexit deal. Expects this message to be hammered home in the weeks ahead. Boris Johnson may have promised £350 million for the NHS from Brexit. The message from Philip Hammond is, you won't get it if it's a hard Brexit. One of the interesting things I thought was he only used the Brexit word once in his speech. I think you yeah. found it appeared three times in three the red book. Three times in the entirety of the um, the budget red book, which is this sort of 60, 80 page odd document that goes alongside the speech and details all the announcements. It was there three places, but all of them in the same footnote. Contrast <laughs> that with the OBR report, which granted was slightly longer than the Red Book, but that was 66 mentions of Brexit and some pretty substantive points that they made. One of the most uh, crucial being that in the event of us not securing a Brexit deal, basically all of their assumptions go out of the window. And it could be quite hairy. Well, more to the point, they've been banned from making such assumptions. I mean, I think this is one of... Um, I mean, scandal is a much bandied around word, but I mean, surely if we as a country have an organisation like the OBR, which is designed to give independent forecasts, the government should be asking the OBR to look at those forecasts and early, obviously for the internal Conservative Party politics, asking the OBR to say that a no-deal Brexit would be um, pretty bad news isn't something uh, <laughs> that is really within the power of the Chancellor to do. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, the economic forecasts ahead of the vote to leave were wrong. I think the public can take that in their stride. Um, and we should we should know what the OBR thinks, personally. I'm interested in one aspect of the relationship between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. Now, we know that there was a falling out and that he was lucky to save his job. Are they now much closer? Do we see them as a central force in the Cabinet? fighting for a certain kind of cause? Um, I think politically they are closer. Um, I'm not sure personally they are much closer. Um, Some people describe them as a sort of squabbling couple. But what I do think was that when Philip Hammond used his pre-budget interviews on Sunday to explicitly or implicitly, depending on how you how you take it, warn that, you know, things could be pretty, pretty grim. And some of this spending was dependent upon there being a Brexit with a smooth deal. And then the following day, Downing Street supposedly sort of slapped him down and said, no, you know, all this spending is is written in stone. We've said we'll spend this money on the NHS. We will, regardless of what kind of Brexit we get. Um, I think that was more of a two-step than a genuine row. Downing Street is not going to be unhappy with Phil Hammond being the outrider and warning that you've got to do a deal, otherwise things are going to be grim, because it suits May's agenda as much as it suits Hammond's. I think actually a lot of the tension between them came from sort of Phil Hammond Mark 1, was that he was not a big spender, he wasn't a big interventionist. The sort of early Theresa May wanting to intervene in markets, whether it was the energy market and the housing market, that's where they clashed ideologically. I don't think they, I don't think they also got on particularly well as you know as people, as colleagues. But it was that big 
conflict. Whereas now, Philip Hammond's basically moved on to Theresa May's turf, is splashing all this cash, has, has gone along with you know the NHS spending. It, th- there's a suggestion that the price for that was that he got to bring forward the income tax cuts, which is a sort of more old-fashioned Tory thing, let's cut income tax. But I think there has definitely been a change in the relationship. I mean, it definitely was a political budget. It, PwC uh, calculated there were 86 budget measures, which is 15 more than last year, but only 33 related to tax measures, i.e. proper budget measures. And of those, only one raised more than uh, a billion in any one year, and only one gave away more than a billion in one year. So that's not a... That is a... That is that. You know, it suggests it was was a political budget. It wasn't. A, it, this was not a proper. You know, let's deal with the economy budget. In the run up to it, certainly in recent months rather than in uh, recent weeks, but Philip Hammond kept saying, you know, there aren't going to be big spending decisions. You have to wait for the spending review next year. And then there was spending all over the place. There was money for obviously for the NHS we knew about. There's an extra billion pounds for defence. Ollie, there was this particularly odd moment when he, he started talking about schools and saying that I think he thought he was doing a nice thing and bringing forward a bit of extra spending for schools, but he described it as being for the little extras, which has gone down incredibly badly with schools who are struggling. It's really struggling. I mean, that was that was a classic piece of, yeah, you could see it looked good when they were writing it and they were trying to put it into language that people could understand, except people did understand it. And they said, well, you know, that's what schools should be getting anyway. They aren't little extras, you know, pens, papers, computer. That is the basis of being a school. Um, I thought that was one of the things that would actually resonate with people out there beyond anything else. I mean, a lot of it will sort of go over people's heads, but something like that uh, will be remembered. And it's the sort of thing that will be brought up at parents' evenings because teachers do have an audience. The schools are a network and, you know, lots of people are parents, lots of people talk to teachers. You know, part of the reason why Michael Gove lost the sort of, I wouldn't quite say political credibility, but his um, reputation was damaged beyond anything by the reforms that he made as education secretary and people you know you just talk to people people know Michael Gove and they remember him for being education secretary not justice secretary not environment secretary certainly not chief whip it was what he did at education that really resonated and the number of sort of school events I've been to for my daughters where the teacher or the head teacher says you know ends a sentence with no thanks to Mr Gove actually years after he stopped being education secretary and no these aren't little extras Mr Hammond thing will will probably resonate Uh, let's have a look at um, some of the the, one of the questions Chris Drew asks we normally only see the chance of splashing the cash carefully to selected friends that is on the run-up to an election, have the odds just shortened on a 2019 general election? Mm, it's an interesting point, and he's not the only person to raise that. I noticed yesterday Stuart Wood, Lord Stuart Wood, who used to be an advisor to Ed Miliband and is a sort of uh, a kind of new Labour figure, also did a long thread on Twitter suggesting that this, there might be a rationale for an election in, in 2019. And I think it's still an outside possibility, but I don't think you could rule it out entirely if Theresa May gets a successful Brexit deal, if she thinks, you know, actually, I want to stay as Prime Minister. The only way, really, she could do that is against the wishes of the vast majority of her <laughs> colleagues and backbenchers is call another election and try and do it better next time. I think it was on Good Morning Britain where Philip Hammond was asked, you know, are you gearing up for election? And he went, well, I hope not. And it sort of it sort of fell out of his mouth before he had time. And then late, in later interviews, he was slightly more, no, 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 this is just doing the right thing. I mean, if this was normal times, and as as, as you regularly point out, this is not normal, to, you know, if, this, if these were normal times, then this was a, 
a year two budget and a five year term. This should have been the budget where we got hit. This should have been the budget where you were saving up a little bit of a war chest, uh, you know, for year four with the support of your backbenchers. But as we all know, there was no way he could take some of those tough measures. So even the IR35 change, which I'm sure Anne will talk about shortly, you know, that's 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 been postponed. But, you know, it's not immediately. The the big changes that he, he, he should be making in year two of a five year term, there was no chance of him doing those. You should, you should hike up tax now and then people have forgotten by the election. Then you spend it all in election year and... Or even better, hike up stealth taxes now. Hope we don't notice, and then give us give us away the headline rate in year four. So this wasn't a normal budget. This should not have been a giveaway budget. I think just picking up on on Richard's point, that I think one of the most interesting things was a line in the OBR report where they said it was too late to assess the changes that Hammond announced on universal credit because they'd only been introduced into the budget at the last moment. Now, you know, everyone knows that you know, this was a story and an issue that had gone up the agenda in recent days, and it just shows the fragility of Hammond's position, that he was forced to sort of rip up what he'd done up until this point and add to the measures with, with the sort of giveaway on universal credit. That wasn't a sort of sign of strength. That was kind of a sign of weakness. Buried in the definitions, there's a definition of a bottle return scheme, despite the fact there's no mention of it in the Red Book or in the speech, which may suggest that that was probably cut out at the last moment. So as you say, it does That's look a little bit like it. It does look a little bit like it's a budget where there's been, there's you know, there's been some last minute... So uh, not done a, a full control F on that to no, uh, remove all references. And, and the Labour Party seem to be in a pickle about how to respond to this, that... It, in the run-up to it, they've been talking more about the end of austerity than the, almost the Conservative Party have. They seem genuinely spooked by the idea that if, if the Tories convince the public that the austerity is coming to an end, that's a massive hole in Labour's strategy. And now you've got this weird thing of the Labour Party's backing the income tax cuts, for the which are going to benefit the top 10% most. It all seems very confusing. The response wasn't necessarily prize-winning, was it? But <laughs> they were relying on this whole tidal flow of rumoured measures that were supposed to be happening in the budget. There was list after list of all these these things that the Chancellor would be changing, affecting, and they were, they seemed entirely caught off their guard. Maybe nobody could have done any better in the circumstances. Ollie, on the, the tax cuts in particular, you had Emily Thornberry, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, tweeting immediately afterwards saying this is awful, you know, tax cuts are the rich, that's the Tories for you. And then John McDonnell does a media round on Tuesday morning where he says that Labour's going to back them because he thinks that they might inject some uh, firepower into the economy. Andy Burnham, the former Cabinet Minister, now Labour Mayor of Greater Manchester, he's written for uh, Times Web Box Online uh, on Tuesday saying... When he heard this, it sent shivers down his spine. It was like when Harriet Harman backed those welfare cuts just after the 2015 election, which he says basically paved paved the way for Jeremy Corbyn. They're in a bit of a pickle on this, aren't they? They are, but the tone of surprise in your voice? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it will pass everyone by. I mean, it's a really hard gig being leader of the opposition having to respond to the budget. Yeah, You haven't really had time to, you know, read it um you you've you've just had to listen to the sort of showmanship and you've got to come up with something it takes them a little bit of time even the slickest of operations takes a little bit of time to get a unified line and you know the labor leadership is not the slickest of operations they've got a very good video which they released over the weekend of a, what you assume is a tory minister 
walking through with some underpass uh, as an aide says, what should we do about uh, benefits? He just says, cut them. And then he takes a sandwich out of a man's hand who's in a wheelchair. And they go through a whole list of things like, cut them, we don't need those. And it sort of finishes with him saying, what should we do about education and health? And he just says, cut the lot, as if that was like now Tory's policy to abolish the NHS. Uh, and then they say, well, what about taxes for the rich and corporations? And he says, well, yeah, we should definitely cut those as well. And it's set to a very sort of cool soundtrack it looks really slick i'm not totally sure that the labor response to the budget necessarily matches the message in that but they are better at that and presumably they just think that nobody's watching the the actual budget and they're more likely to see their viral videos you might be right i would say that video would be a far more potent message than anything that Jeremy Corbyn said after the budget speech. And the other thing, I mean, the, the Treasury is at this as well now. Um, one of the weirder things that I saw yesterday was was the budget according to Gladstone the Cat, um, <laughs> which, you know, honestly, it's not a spoof. It was an official... Someone has spent quite a lot of time following this cat around the Treasury, taking photographs of it, yawning, sort of eating and playing with sort of fake mice um, as they announced the five things that Gladstone the cat cares about in the budget. I mean... Well, I'm on record as saying I hate cats, so I've managed to avoid that entirely. But even the idea, I mean, you now have... I mean, it's not just the odd leak now. You have a you have three or four days of, of embargoed press releases day after day, you know, leaking half the... Measure. I mean, I you know, I know I'm old and old-fashioned, <laughs> but, you know, I do remember the days where it well, everything in a budget was a surprise, bar maybe one or two... Yeah. Uh, you know, very small policies that had been leaked to the Sundays, but everything else was a genuine surprise. The surprising thing this time, they were, they were leaking or pre-briefing so much that you'd have two th- stories in one press release. Yeah, absolutely. They, and, the, and, and the one at the bottom would get slightly lost. I mean, yeah. it was really diff- one of the difficulties we had, I mean, not, only, not only the fact that he decided to do it at 3.30, which obviously is also old-fashioned, but I don't welcome that return. But, you know, it, one of the problems was that there's so much being pre-leaked, we couldn't decide whether we should write about it again or whether it had been written about enough or whether we should... I mean, it, it, more, the leak now is it, it's, it's ridiculous. They still maintain the line when you phone them up and ask them, so we can't comment on budget speculation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we can press release it. Yeah, we'll, we'll email you over some speculation. <laughs> shortly. Uh, right, in a sec, we'll move on and uh, talk about what this actually means for normal people and money in their pockets um, in just a sec. We'll be back after this short break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Jolly, joined in the studio by Richard Fletcher. 
Ollie Wright, and this is Anne Ashworth. At times, the budget was like being at an embarrassing wedding. Not just because the Chancellor's labour jokes reminded you of a certain sort of father of the bride. Phil Hammond was scattering measures like confetti, a little something for almost everyone. A bit more in wage packets, a bit for first-time buyers and so on. But there was no stimulus for the property market and the unlocking of sites for new homes has been delayed again. The pension tax reliefs remain untouched, but for how long can that last? And you, you touched on housing there. A few weeks ago, I spoke to someone at the Treasury who would know about these things and asked, is, you know, is there going to be a big housing thing? And they said, well, it won't be the biggest thing, but there was going to be something from housing. And that just seems to have just dropped out. I mean, even Richard's saying there was a change on help to buy, but that, that you didn't even mention it. The changes on help to buy are quite extensive and they were, as Richard said, hidden away in one of the budget backing documents. Could you explain briefly what they are? Well, essentially, there will be the scheme is going to be extended, but there will be caps on the amount that you can use, which is a response to the huge controversy of the enrichment of bosses of house builders thanks to help to buy. And that has caused a huge amount of opposition to the scheme, some of which is unwarranted in my view. But in the speech, he he concentrated on a tiny measure allowing people who buy a shared ownership property to claim back the stamp duty that they may have paid. And he did reiterate the statement that councils would be allowed to borrow to build new homes. But the central thing we were all waiting for was the Letwin report, which is all about ensuring that homes on sites on which there is planning consent are delivered. And I expected a keynote statement on that. Again, that has been delayed. Now, was there opposition to landowners on the idea that you might be seizing some of their profit if they delay the delivery of homes? Or was it, as some might suspect, fear of the NIMBY tendency out there in the shires that sees the word development and feels very, very threatened and rises up in opposition? Theresa May describes dealing with the housing crisis as her personal mission. How do you think that mission's going? All I know is that at the party conference there's a huge amount of data going round about how many people have moved to Labour because they don't see the Tories as the party of aspiration towards own home ownership anymore. And there has been something that they call the rent quake, where if you uh, feel that you will never own, you are naturally a Labour voter. And Labour was saying something about having attracting young professionals who feel dispossessed. Now, there was no no rhetoric in the speech reaching out to that crucial demographic of voters whom the Tories need if they are going to um, win at the next election. In fact, Ollie, there wasn't very much rhetoric at all in it. It was difficult to know what was the slogan that he would have wanted people to use as the headline. Yeah. And it sort of, it, despite having gone on for 75 minutes, it sort of suddenly finished. No, it was interesting because I wrote the sort of our media online piece on it. I mean, yeah, you've got to sort of listen and sort of half think what you're writing and trying to pull it together. And yeah, clearly, first phrase he used, you know, the end of austerity is coming near. Yeah, I wrote that down. And then found it sort of, you know, 69 minutes in, I was sticking with the sort of first thing that I've written down. And other than that, no, you're absolutely right. There wasn't there wasn't a great deal of that. 
Um, I mean, there was the usual start of strivers and, you know, those of us with... Uh, and grafters and alarm clocks. I do wonder, do politicians, politicians think that, you know, only a few percentage of the population have alarm clocks? Because I thought most people had them, but, you know. <laughs> um, so there was the usual strivers rhetoric, but you're right, there wasn't a sort of, there wasn't an overwhelming wasn't message. That. We are the builders, which is one <laughs> no. of my favourite, the George Osborne. But I suppose if you were sitting in the Treasury, yeah, there was a clear message, you know, the end of austerity is nearly over if you do what I say, and... They probably didn't want to confuse the message. Let's talk about IR35. Explain to, if you, to people who might not know, what is IR35? IR35, possibly the most contentious thing you can imagine. Now, you can work and essentially be self-employed, or you could be. but And first, that was the rules allowing you to do that were changed for the public sector, And now they're going to be changed for the private sector. That means if you go into a job as a consultant or whatever you call yourself and you essentially look like any other employee but are enjoying national insurance and other benefits, those are going to be taken away from you. That has caused considerable unrest among that community of contractors principally because they feel as if they're being accused of tax avoidance when they were only complying with the rules that the taxman had laid out some years ago. Philip Hammond, I think, has an instinctive dislike of there being two classes of employed person, a self-employed person and and an ordinary worker, and he wants them to be treated just the same, whereas these people who were enjoying the IR35 concessions feel that they were taking some risk upon themselves and so deserved some more reward in the form of tax breaks. Philip Hammond's sort of world view of normal people in normal, you know, nine to five jobs and they get a salary at the end of the month is is part of the tension in the Treasury. Because on the other side, you've got Liz Truss, who's part of the uber-wielding, deliveroo-riding warriors, or something she calls themselves. And she's all about the gig economy and being more flexible and, and all that sort of thing. And, and that's where treating people who, you know, they take some of the risk of being essentially self-employed. Uh, but as a result, you know, and so they get some some perk from that as well. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, I suppose here's the question. I mean, you know, given the changing nature of the economy, I assume the figures show that the number of people who are in this kind of work is going up quite rapidly. And if you're trying to protect your revenues, you need you need to try and somehow equalise it. And you're certainly not going to equalise it by giving the tax benefits to you know nine to five workers. So you can see a sort of a practical beyond a political point to it, but there's a sort of practical good management point to it and protecting the revenues that you've got. I I don't know whether that's... I would just come back to the way in which this has been framed. It seems like everybody that was enjoying these concessions is about to email or text one of us at Times Money. But they (laughs) feel as if those concessions were legal. That was the tax law at this time. It has been changed. Perhaps they can accept that. But deeming what the way they worked and the way they ran their finance as tax avoidance, which we see as egregious, is distasteful to them. Don't give my, my email address at the end of this, but <laughs> yeah. these aren't... We're not talking about Uber drivers here. We're talking about IT contractors, yeah. we're talking about uh, accountants, and we're talking about people who, you know, uh, who, who, who may have ended up working for one... Uh, one company for many many years and basically they've been they've had a very good ride of it for a few years and the treasury quite rightly has looked at it and said hold on a second you're not paying national insurance your 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 um your employer isn't having to pay you holiday pay or 
pension or you know all those things we think responsible employers should do uh, there's more and more of you and actually we want to change the rules and we've given you plenty of notice which they have if you if you were a contractor and you haven't seen this one coming then you haven't been paying very much attention <laughs> and and we're not going to introduce yes, Richard it Dot Fletcher. <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing it particularly quickly and therefore I, I I've got you know if you're working in a company and you're directly employed and you're working in the IT department and you're paying you know you're paying your national insurance and you know you're paying through the pay way system and the guy sitting on your on the desk next to you is a contractor and has been there for the last three years and is paying you know probably half the tax that you are uh, and and also when he retires isn't going to have a pension so you're going to end up bailing him out then as well I can't I haven't I haven't got a huge amount of sympathy as you might be able to tell they are however a vocal group and it's quite interesting as Richard as has as, as Richard has pointed out that they have delayed the implementation of this until 2020. Now, we had thought that this would come into effect in April 2019. Is this giving everybody in the Treasury enough time to go to change their emails, change any way that they're being contacted? Because these people have had it really good and now they're pretty angry. I'm, I'm conscious that we're running out of time, but Anne, you're always so good when people ask uh, very specific questions. Keith Tunstall asks... Uh, we're keen to downsize but cannot sell our house in today's market. We're thinking of renting out at the other end and letting our current house. Uh, thus, we reluctantly become a landlord. The situation might go on for years. I'm sure Brexit uncertainty will continue into the transition period. Are we going to be liable for capital gains tax when we finally sell our current house? Right, Keith, there's a huge amount in your questions. <laughs> a, should there have been some stamp duty concession to encourage you to downsize and free up your family house? Yes, certainly, but there wasn't one. Now, what you are going to become if you follow through with this plan is what's called an accidental landlord. And yes, there was something in the budget which will hit you. Once upon a time, you had, you could move out of your house and you had a period of grace by in which to, to rent it out and then sell it, which lasted for 18 months. And that's going to be cut to nine months. Now, there may be some argy-bargy about that. There may be concessions, but this is part of the whole toughening up of the tax regime that covers any kind of landlord, whether you treat it as a business or you've just happened to become a landlord. So certainly you will be liable for CGT. See, this is a proper reader service. Thank you, as uh, ever, Anne. Just very quickly, it's quite often when we when we talk about the budget and we do podcast specials and all that, a week later we've sort of forgotten it ever happened. Do we all think that this is a different cut of fish? This is a a moment that we'll remember. We will never forget the embarrassment of those jokes, <laughs> Ollie. I don't think this is a classic budget. I think um, within a few days, Brexit will rear its ugly head again and we'll all have forgotten about it. I suspect we will, unless, you know, it was, it was a free fairly budget. As we said, there's a lot in the documents that we haven't yet come out of. So unless there's something buried in there, which is the next pasty tax, we probably will, yes. Well, let's, let's end it on a, the mention of pasties, which is always a good way to uh, end a conversation. My huge thanks to Anne, Ollie and Richard. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on your Android device and now on Spotify, excitingly. Uh, and you can subscribe to my morning email. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Goodbye. 